This morning, a couple times, we just want to share a few thoughts about what we've been singing about, what we've been hearing about. Have you ever thought about how many Christmas songs have the word king in them? What are some examples? Any songs that talk about Christ as king? What? Christ is born? We three kings? We're, we're going to get to, to the story of the Magi. <laughs> Joy to the world. Emmanuel? I didn't hear that. Hollywood Manger Ground? Any others? Hark the herald angels sing glory to the... Joy to the world. I can go on and on. Almost every song we've sang this morning actually brings up the kingship of Christ. Remember the chorus of what child is this that we just sang? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste, to bring Him laud, or worship Him, the babe, the son of Mary. And we're fascinated with kings, aren't we? We're fascinated with this idea as Christ is king. Even in our own literature, and our own culture, the idea of king keeps coming up, right? What's one of the top movies this weekend? The Hobbit. The Hobbit. Nobody knows about movies. Okay. <laughs> The, the Hobbit, the desolation of smog, and, and what's the story about? It's about King Thorin reclaiming his kingdom from smog, the dragon who has taken this kingdom away. And so we have a battle of kingship, a battle between the true king and a false king. Lord of the Rings was another popular series that always came out at Christmas time. And what was the, the thrust of that series? What was the, the, the climactic point? The return of the king. We're fascinated with things like King Arthur. If you look through Disney movies, kingship comes up over and over and over again. If you look through the Narnia series, kingship keeps coming up and keeps coming up. And so this morning, we celebrate that the king is born. The king is born. Not a king, but the king is born. But to really grasp that, to really understand that, We want to give some context. We want to go back and say, why does it matter? Who cares that the king is born? Does that even make a difference at Christmas time? Or is it just a great excuse to put up a tree and lights, lots of lights, and and to, to just have a good meal afterwards? But what difference does it make that the king is born? Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible in the seat underneath, there should be an ESV Bible that you're welcome to take and use this morning. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one home. And that way you have God's Word in in your hands and you can read that. But Matthew chapter 2, and and we jump to the end of the Christmas story. Throughout our time this morning, we've been sharing excerpts from the Christmas story and and readings from the Christmas story, but we we jump to the end, maybe six months to a year or, or so later, and we don't always think of the, the Magi coming to visit later, but they, they came and they made this trip, and that took time, and they came to a house instead of a stable. And so this is a little bit after the birth of the king. But it's part of the Christmas story, and rightfully part of our nativities. But in Matthew chapter 2, and I just want to start with verses 1 and 2, and then we'll, we'll, we'll just do some more worship. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, and, and understand here, the author, and especially Matthew, is all about kingdom. He's setting up a dilemma here. Herod the king. Herod was a cruel, vicious, despicable man. He was a man that killed his wife and two of his sons simply because he was trying to protect his power and he was afraid they would try to take his power. If you go and and, and visit some of the places that he built and the palaces that he built and the fortifications he built just to protect himself, he was a paranoid, vicious man who would do anything to stay the king. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, often we, we sing of them as kings, but they, they were magi. And these aren't wise men, but, but more, or they aren't, they aren't kings, but they're wise men. They're advisors. They are men of prominence that are coming from the east uh, a ways away. And maybe we'd think of them as like a chief of staff or something like that to our president. But these are influential men that are coming. And they said, where is he? And they're saying this to Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And right in that verse, the author sets a dilemma. He sets a contest here between Herod the king and where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How, how do you think Herod responds to this news? Keep in mind, he's killed a wife, two, two sons. No! This is a threat. This is a, a, a battle of kingship. And the Magi said, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And they're seeking the true king. To understand that, like I said, we need to give some context to it. And so for our, our first time in the Word, we're not going to spend a lot of time in the Christmas story. We're going to go back and look at history and go back and look at the Old Testament to understand why this matters. Why it is one of the most important things that the king is born. Context help us, helps us understand. Mark was talking to Susie this week and he goes, Mom, when you were a kid, were there cars? <laughs> yes, son. We had cars when we were kids. He's looking for context. Did Papa and Grandma have cars when they were kids? Yep, pretty sure they had cars. And then he, went, he kept going back until he, he found a generation that wouldn't have had cars. He was trying to understand the development of things. That's what we want to do this morning to understand what it means that there's this battle of kingship. See, a king is one, and whenever the Bible uses king, it's, it's one that, that has invested authority, ultimate authority, and power over his subjects. One that rules. I'd like you to turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll take a quick tour of the issue of kingship. Genesis chapter 1 starts, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Short verse, most of you know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right from verse 1, it's a statement of authority. It's a statement of sovereignty. God created all things, and God is king over all things. He rules over all things. 
And that's the setup for the rest of history, the rest of the book, as we see this battle for kingship. We go on, if you just skip down to verse 27, God creates man. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, and you see God giving instructions to man, his subjects. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And as we think about awaiting the king and the importance of the king, three points that I want us to remember this morning. The first is we were built for the king by the king. We were built for a king by a king. From creation we were intended to be in communion with God, in submission to God, in relationship with God. That's how God created it to work. And it's a beautiful thing when it works that way. And that's Genesis 1. And that's about how long that ideal lasts. But we were built for a king by the king. We need a king. So many times people have sought a king and, and the problem is we seek human kings. And there is never a time in history where human kings have proven reliable, have proven a good solution. And so we write stories about wise kings, just kings, compassionate kings, caring kings, because we are seeking what God has put in our hearts in the beginning God created. But point number two, and we get to Genesis 3, we don't want a king because we want to be king. We were built for a king, but we don't want a king because we, we don't want a king because we want to be king. In Genesis 3, 4, and 5, looking over just a couple chapters, but the serpent said to the woman, and, and hear what he says, hear the conflict of authority, you will not surely die, and he questions the king. No, what God said isn't true. You won't die. I know God said that, but who's He? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the allure there? What's the promise? You will be like God. You will be king. You will know what God knows. You will have authority that God has. You won't need God. Which was Satan's fall. And so we were built for a king, but we don't want a king because we want to be king. And in those verses, we have a battle between kingdoms set up. A battle that the rest of history, the rest of the story of God's Word is about. What's going to happen with this challenge to God's kingship? What is going to happen Will the real king, will the genuine king rise to power? Will he defeat the usurping ones? But the challenge is, because of sin, because of sin and the bondage that sin holds on us, we will never be king. And Satan lied to Eve to say, you will be like God. In reality, he was saying, I want you to serve me. 
And it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of rebellion between the true king and the false king, Satan himself. So we know from God's Word that sin, when we sin, it so corrupts us and so keeps us in bondage that we can't help but sin. There is no way that we can stop sinning on our own. There is no way that we can save ourselves. If you think of it this way, if a king's subject tries to rebel and take over the throne, what does the king do to him? Kill him. Okay, let's say it's a nicer king than killing. What else might he do? Put him in prison. Put him in the dungeon. So he locks this person that's in rebellion, which we've already seen mankind, all of us are in, locks him in the dungeon, throws away the key. How much does that prisoner get to talk to the king? None. Does it matter how much the prisoner wants to? No, does it matter how much he tries to? No, he's in a dungeon. He's in bondage. What is the only way that that prisoner can be restored to the king? If the king comes to him and releases him and gives him away. It's completely up to the king. And so... We were designed, we were created for a king. We don't want a king. We rebelled against a king. And the third point there is God promised His Son would come to earth as the king on a rescue mission. And He would come to the dungeon and with the keys and He would offer a way out of the cell if we will believe in Him. And so we see this as a kingship battle. God versus Satan. Pure good from God's nature versus pure evil of Satan's nature. The true king versus the false king. And we see this throughout all of history. We move forward in Genesis 6 to the flood. And what was the issue of the flood? What had the people done? Rebelled against the king to a point that the king was done. And we read in Genesis 6, 5-6, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. But we serve a merciful King. A compassionate King. And so in verse 8, we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the King gave a way out to those that believe. We move ahead to Exodus And the children of Israel, and I'm skipping through history, but the children of Israel are under the bondage of Pharaoh who thought he was king. And and God says this to Moses, The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all I say to you. And it's a, a conflict of kingship. And God rescues His people from a false earthly king to worship the true king. And we keep moving forward and we see this conflict. King after king fought Israel as they were entering the promised land. But the king had given them the land. The king was keeping his plan moving forward to rescue his creation. And so through all these things, we see a battle between good and evil, between kings. But we see the true king, who is king of all kings, above all kings, his hand keeping history going toward the birth of a Savior because that's His rescue mission. And nothing, nothing will stop God's mission. Praise God. Nothing will stop His mission. 
We see in the period of Judges, kings would come and subjugate Israel whenever they'd fall away. God would let that happen. God was working His plan though. And instead of wiping out Israel, Israel would repent and God would rescue them. And we see again a battle between the king and false kings. Children of Israel struggled without a king. In fact, in Judges it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see the need for a king. But instead of worshiping Yahweh, who said, I am your king, they said, give us a king. And we know how that worked out. As king after king subjugated Israel and taxed them and did not walk with God. But all along, all along they were waiting for the true king. Something inside is yearning for the true king. And we keep replacing it with all these other things we worship. But the true king is coming. Hannah said this in, in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2.10. She said, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in earth. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. And the word for anointed there is Meshiach, Messiah. He says there's one coming and He's going to rule justly. He's going to take care of evil. He's going to bring His kingdom to earth. And so we see this divine versus earthly battle versus evil. We saw it in David and Goliath moving forward into some of the kings. Why was David so upset? Because they were mocking the true king. And he said, are you going to let this Philistine scum, my translation, say this about God? We saw it in Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as, as Neb said, I am king. I am the king of kings, actually, he used for himself. I am above all kings. And God humbled him and said, eat some grass for seven years. Throughout history, it's a divine battle of kingship. But they were waiting for the true king. The true king is coming. Turn to Psalm 2. I want to end our section with this passage as we, we talk about awaiting the King and the history of kingship so we understand why Christmas is so powerful. Psalm 2. And see if you don't see those same three points in this passage. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, Mashiach, Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And what those first three verses are saying is, we don't want a king. When it talks about bursting their cords from us, it's saying, I don't want to be in submission to them. It's holding me back. I don't want to serve God. And it's this battle that started at creation and then the fall. And he goes on in verse 4 as God says, well, okay, let me talk about that. He who sits in the heaven laughs because he's the king of kings. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath because kings are just, a good king is just, and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king at Zion. Referring to Jerusalem. I've set Jesus. My Son is coming. The Messiah is coming. 
and He will be the true King. My holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And God says this about Jesus, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he goes on to say what our response should be. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We see service. We see rejoicing. Kiss the Son, a statement of allegiance, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And we have a psalm here that is considered a messianic psalm looking forward to the birth of the King. We were built to have a King. We want a King in the sense of we we crave it in our inner being, but because of sin, we don't want a King. Because we want to be King. And so God is sending the King on a rescue mission to retrieve His subjects from the dungeon in the bondage of sin. That's the setup for why we're talking about the kingship of God today. And so I come back to the verses we read at the beginning. In Matthew 2, 1-3, through 3, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, interesting that he keeps repeating the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I bet. The angel to Mary said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Praise God. The king is born because we need a king. And we saw the the wise men in the the, the video coming to worship the king. And so as we we come to the conclusion of our service this morning, we want to talk just real briefly, okay, what are the implications that the king is born? Because I don't know if you realized it yet this morning, the king is born. And he is here And that means something, but it demands a response to us. And so I'd like to turn back to Matthew chapter 2 and look at the Magi's response and just briefly grab a couple of, of ways that we can respond as we think about Christ as King and not just an ordinary baby. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. Magi have come. They've talked to King Herod. Herod's a little upset. And in verse 4 it says, In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He wants to know what's going on. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And the prophecy is about a king, a ruler. And so Herod secretly summons the wise men and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. He's trying to figure out how old this child might be to take care of the situation. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, 
Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him too. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so we have a familiar story, but hopefully in the concept, uh, in, in the context of kingship, it brings on new life and new meaning because the king, the long-awaited king, is finally here. And this is their response. And the implications that come with the birth of the king, not just a king, are implications that still affect us today. The first, and on the back page of your notes, we have some notes that you can take. The first implication is peace. Peace. See, a king destroys his enemies. The king has no enemies that can stand up to him. So the king destroys his enemies, and that brings peace to his kingdom. The first implication of the birth of the king is peace, but we have to come to him. We have to be part of his kingdom to experience that victory, to experience that peace. The Magi came 900, 1,000 miles, roughly from here to Texas. And they, they, they made that journey. And they came to the king at great cost, at great personal inconvenience. They came to worship the king. And it's no different today if we want peace. And Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want peace, we need to come to the King and acknowledge the King and worship the King. Because that baby that was born King to defeat evil, to defeat the false King, 30 years later would hang on a cross to take the penalty for our sin. Because the only way to get the prisoner out of the dungeon is to pay the penalty of why he's there. And so Jesus Christ, our King, hung on that cross in our place and died taking the place you and I deserve to be in. Taking the punishment we deserve to be in. And so the King at that moment had victory over the false King. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? But that victory only applies to people in Christ's kingdom that come to the King. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. A false king gives us death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, the true king gives us life. We can have true peace because Jesus is king. So the first implication of his kingship is will we come? Will we come to him? Are we part of this kingdom? There are some sitting here this morning that may not have ever accepted Christ as their king, that may not have ever said, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I take your sacrifice and I worship you and I give my life to you. And if you've never done that, you are still worshiping the false king and all of the false promises that he gives that lead to death. The king is born and we need to come to him. 
Second implication of the king is the word joy. Joy. We're to rely on him. We saw the, the, the wise men in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And in the original language there, it's like they were joyful, really joyful, exceedingly joyful. It's this, this um, repeated emphasis that said they were just ecstatic with joy because they found the king. And that's the way it works. See, the king takes care of issues in his kingdom, doesn't he? And so if the king is taking care of the issues, what does that leave you and I to take care of? Nothing. We keep trying to take care of issues and take it away from the king because we want to be our own king. And God says, let me take care of the issues, but worship me, follow me, and I will give you joy. I love the saying, good morning, this is God. I will be handling all your problems today. I will not need your help, so have a good day. That's joy. Trusting and relying on the true king that he can handle this. Herod was a false king. Caused trouble. But the true king is here. Third implication of the the coming king, that Christ has come, is allegiance. Allegiance. See, a king leads his subjects. A king expects his subjects to submit to him. Otherwise, they're not his subjects. They're not in his kingdom. And so we need to accept his kingship. And while we come for salvation, accepting his kingship is submitting to him, giving our lives to him. What did the Magi do when they came to the king? They gave. They gave gifts. In verse 11, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Sometimes we take those three gifts to think there were only three wise men. There were probably more. But these gifts are indicative of gifts that you give to a king. Gifts that you give royalty. And to give a gift to a king was to acknowledge allegiance to a king, surrender to a king. In the psalm passage, it says, kiss the son, give allegiance to the son. So you had gold that was highly prized and frankincense and myrrh that was used in expensive perfumes. Frankincense from trees, the sap of trees, myrrh from a bush. But they were revering the king. And so that challenge, that implication is, do we revere the king? Have we offered up ourselves to him beyond salvation? Do we continue to serve him? Do we continue to live under his kingship? It means submission. But submission to an all-knowing, wise Good, compassionate, just king is a joy. It's not, it's not submission as a penalty or something harsh, but it's coming in line with our Creator because we were made to have a king. Fourth implication is hope. Hope. See, a king ensures a bright future for his followers because a king is taking care of it all and has defeated all the enemies. Just all goes together. And so there's hope with the king. Trust him with your future. The true king offers a future life with him. A false, the false king offers future punishment also with him. But we know our future is secure because God is faithful. In Philippians 1.6 we read, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion as to, on the day of Jesus Christ. 
We don't have to worry. We don't have to stay up all night worrying about our future. We're to be faithful to the King, serve Him, follow His Word, follow His wisdom, and trust that He will take care of the details. It doesn't mean we're foolish, but we base our wisdom on the King and on His commands. We saw that even in this story at the end, verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And God is protecting His Son, the King, is protecting the wise men, because God knows all. Past, present, future, we can trust Him. The finally, and, and what I think is an overriding theme, an overriding implication that, that incorporates all four of those, and that's worship. Worship. We're to lift up the King. See, a a true king, a good king, is worthy of worship. In fact, what else can we do if we serve him? To not worship him is to deny his kingship. We saw that in, in again, the wise men in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The the word for worship there, proskuneo, is to, to fall on your face on the ground, prostrate on the ground in utter allegiance, in utter worship. And they were elevating God, submitting selves. And so this morning, as we think of kingship, it's all about worship. It's all about coming in line under the king. Who is your king? And that's the question I leave you with today, is what king are you serving? We were created, we were made, we were built for the true king, but we want to be our own king, which ultimately is following Satan as king. Who is your king? Who do we spend our time thinking about? Who do we devote, what do we devote our efforts to? Our king might be an item, or a hobby, or a thing. Maybe it's money, maybe it's sports, maybe it's a job, but what consumes you? See, Christmas loses meaning when we elevate the wrong things. When it becomes about the gifts, or the lights, or the events, we elevate the wrong things, and that brings in worry and and frustration. This morning, we elevate one thing, the king. Because nothing is to supplant the king. And so we want to continue with some worship. And as we do, and as we continue with some music, I'd like to invite you up, as is one of our traditions, to take an ornament off the tree. And we have, we have ornaments for each family. I can get mine here. And it's an ornament of a wise man on a camel. And every time you see this ornament at home, my prayer is that you remember that the king, the true king, is born... And am I worshiping Him with every moment of my day? With everything I do? How does what my schedule looks like this week worship the King and bring glory to the King? And as Joshua sings, I'd invite you to come and grab an ornament for your home. And maybe if you sit down and he's still singing, you can listen to the song. If you want to pray together as a family and just praise God for His kingship, for His sacrifice, for His gift. And then we'll end our service with worship together. But come, get just a a simple little ornament 
that will help you remember that Christmas isn't about all the trappings, it's about the King.
without giving you a chance to give your life to the real king. I'd like to bow, bow our heads just for a moment. And just think for a moment about this divine cosmic battle of kingship. And what king are you following with your life? Maybe you've never heard of Jesus before. Maybe you've never heard of his birth, his death on the cross to rescue us from the dungeon of sin and the consequence of death. But this morning, you can change all that by simply believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and committing to follow him with your life. And that transfers citizenship to the true king. Just if, you, if, if that's you, if your desire is that this morning, I'd like you to just pray with me. And I'll pray and just you can silently pray right there. Dear Lord God, I know that I have sinned, that I have rebelled against you, that I have followed the false king. Lord, but today I want to follow you. I accept you as my Savior. I accept your sacrifice on the cross and believe you rose from the dead three days later. I give my life to you. I make you my King. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you are King. We praise you, we worship you, we give you our hearts. And even now as we eat, just a reminder of how you as king provide. We are grateful to you. But we do this to celebrate your coronation, your kingship. We praise you and give you our hearts. In Jesus' name.